at the end of the day, if you look at the United States, in 10 years, 50% of your population will be non-white. So if you want to make this country great in 10 years, we need everybody helping out and we need everybody to be at their best and to bring their true authentic selves to work or to academia or to the communities. So everybody has to be included. So no one can lie back and be silent about this. It's going to affect all of us in the end. Hi, everyone. It's Johanna Gottlieb with Access Promotions and Chair of Promo Kitchen. Today, we have a special guest, Hugh Lawson, who is the Director of Business Development at Staples. I'm really excited today to speak with him and to unpack a lot his words. Hugh, thanks for joining us. And why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Staples? Well, hey, thank you, Johanna. It's such a pleasure to be on this podcast. I was telling my young Gen Y daughter I was going to do a podcast this afternoon, and that just brought me up like 10 rungs on the coolness factor at home. So this is great. So thank you so much. I've been with Staples now on and off a total of 16 years. I was there for five years first when it was Corporate Express before it was acquired by Staples in 2007. I actually left for a year, joined another company. And I came back and I've been in this role and capacity as a business development director for about 11 years. How I got into this industry, actually, I kind of grew into it because when I was an undergraduate at university, I played varsity football. And in high school, we used to organize the jackets for the team. And then in university, I and a buddy of mine, we decided to design jackets for the varsity teams. And then we had a high school buddy who owned an embroidery shop and he did all the back end. So we literally had a side hustle on campus selling jackets to teams and then campus wear to residential floors. So if you're on floor A1 East of Wilson Residence and you needed 24 shirts to your floor, I was the guy. So when I was about to graduate and I ended up playing a year of pro football, but I just knew it wasn't going to be long, and I kind of had desires to be an entrepreneur. I realized that, and what I read was that half of the jobs that were going to exist five years from my graduation hadn't been created yet. So I said, you know, let me get into business for myself. So I started a promotional products company because a lot of the people that ordered from me for the floor shirts and the varsity shirts were also in business school. And when they graduated from business school, they all get marketing jobs. So instead of calling me and asking for 24 sweaters for their floor team building event, as a graduate and now working in the real world, they're asking me for a quote for 200 sweaters for a new marketing campaign. So I did that for about eight years. And then around 9-11, it really had an impact on my business. And my firstborn was, oh, wow, she was like a year old. We had a mortgage hanging over our head. 40% of my business went away. I said, you know, it's time to get a job. So I actually interviewed and got a job at Corporate Express. So that's what brought me to this point today. So I've literally been in this business since I was 20 years old. Wow. That's incredible. I love that you bring up your daughter and podcast and trying to sound cool. I'm here at the opposite end. I have a almost 60-year-old and a two-year-old. And I do occasional TikToks for work. Nice. Introducing swag. And so my six-year-old gets to do TikToks with me for work and thinks I'm cool. Very cool. <laughs> I'll take any point I can get. I hear you on that. <laughs> yes. So 
Let's talk a little bit about this last year. I know in the world, it's been a heavy year, a strong year. The Black Lives Matter movement is in full effect since the passing of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. What has last year meant to you personally around racism and diversity? When I hear you speak and I hear about your webinars, I hear you talk about your why. What is your why? My why comes from a four to five decade of experiences and happenings that this year unearthed. You know, this past year was a year of awakening. It was a reckoning for me. Actually, it wasn't like where I was completely asleep. Like, I've always been doing things around social justice for many years. That's how I was raised. Like, my parents were very involved in community groups. They were Jamaican immigrants to Canada. My brother and I were born in Toronto, but they immigrated to Canada in the 60s. So they're involved in cultural groups. My mom was one of the founding members of the Black Women's Congress chapter in Mississauga, where I grew up. So I was always around it. So there was always this importance to do something for purpose and for good. So that was always been my why. Like I've always mentored. I've always worked with groups in the Black community, always worked with young people. But essentially, you know, 2016 and last year supercharged that. So 2016, when Trump got elected, that put an extra fire in me to accelerate the efforts. But then with, you know, the subsequent killings of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, so on and so on and so on. It was like a release valve for many of us where it just meant that now we got this one moment in time that it's special, it's unique. We've never seen this much attention. We've never seen this much energy. We've never seen this much trauma. And it created a groundswell of outpouring. And I also think the isolation and the pandemic had brought out a lot of empathy in people that didn't quite understand anti-Black racism or didn't quite understand how prevalent police brutality was. So now you have this groundswell of people going through something, awakening, reckoning, and then you also have this other groundswell of allies. So what it meant to me was like, now is the time. And with my why, I'm just driving others to find their why so we can all get on this train together to just make some real positive change. As long as I've been alive, there's always been a moment of reckoning, you know, whether it was the LA riots. But the one thing that's different about this time around is people are actually doing something about it at a grassroots level. So in terms of like the last year, that's what's happened to me. It's actually put me on another level. It's actually almost like a booster button on a race car. You know, it's actually putting me up to 10, 15,000 RPMs. Yeah. And to go back to your daughter, Gen Y, millennials, they're doing the work. For me, what I'm seeing is incredible. The power of social media, the power of what we're hearing from younger and younger audience on what they're sharing, what they're learning, resources, accounts to follow. I'm so floored on that not just being May, June, July, August, September, that being today, tomorrow, people really using social media in a positive way to amplify their voices and other voices. I know a lot of the information I've read and a lot of resources I've read and podcasts that I've been told to listen to or books that people ask me have been all through social. Mm-hmm. That's been incredible. I agree. I've always been a huge fan of millennials. Like I actually admire and envy them to a certain extent. Just being on the leadership team within our division at Staples, 
for years, we've been grappling around how do we keep our millennial staff, we have a very young associate base, how do we keep them engaged? And the one thing, you know, we kind of sluggishly try to figure out was that, you know, they want you to stand for something. And in many cases, you know, there's always someone giving a millennial a hard time. Oh, they're not loyal. Oh, they're always trying to be a CEO in two years. You know, if they're not happy, they just leave. They just don't stick to things. And I don't believe that for a second. I actually respect that. I respect the fact that they're like, you know what, you, this company that you're helping lead doesn't stand for anything. You know what? I'm going to just go somewhere and find a company that does because I'm spending most of my day awake at work. And if that's the case, then I need to be in an environment that's a safe space and it's going to do something with purpose. And that side of the millennial coin really came to fruition this past year. Like all those protests, the visibility of all this trauma and atrocities, all driven through technology, all driven through social media, all driven by millennials, of which the rest of us are trying to catch up. And I'm so grateful that they led that push because it's definitely changed my life. And I find with even just the group we have internally at Staples, it's all millennials driving it. Like I provide executive sponsorship, but man, they're going, they're doubling down, creating some great educational content, driving some very uncomfortable conversations. But I think we've cracked the code. They're all engaged because now they're working on something that's meaningful at work. I agree. I also have a really good outlook on millennials. Unlike a lot of other people, I think millennials are very hardworking. I think they have different reward systems and different outlooks on what they benefit from through work. And so I agree. I think there's a very negative connotation around them that just isn't true in my eyes. I agree. I'm a wannabe millennial. Yeah. I even got skinny jeans. <laughs> well, now they're out. <laughs> Haven't you heard? They're out. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I want to be a millennial. It doesn't mean I've cracked the code. I'm always a step behind and I'm comfortable with my sluggishness. I'm trying my best. <laughs> Perfect. And so in you doing the work, as you said, the last year and the last few months, what have you learned about yourself? Something maybe that you didn't know before? I've kind of surprised myself. I, I mean, everybody knows me more of a, as a diplomat, more someone who finds a nice way to say things. I've been pretty direct and had a lot of candor in some of the things I've said in a public arena that I've actually caught myself saying going, oh, wow, am I going to get in trouble for this? But then what I'm finding is that I guess I still managed to put a diplomatic spin to it, even though it might be an uncomfortable narrative where people are grateful for hearing it. I just, for the first time in my life, as strongly as I've felt about this topic, this is the first time in my life where I truly feel I'm willing to die for a cause, like without blinking. I mean, I would die for my family. I would die for my kids, you know, die for my wife. But this cause... I would die for it. I wouldn't blink. If someone said, Hugh, you're going to have to leave this planet in order for all this to change. I know in my heart of hearts, I would say, yeah, okay, well, what do you need me to do? Is this like, does this happen? Is there a button I switch? Like, that's the part where it's like, this is different. That's beautiful. And that's powerful. I'm going to let that sink in for a moment. You would die for this cause. Yeah, I, I don't know too many people would die for a cause, but I truly feel I would. That's how I feel right now. That's amazing. Beautiful. So in speaking to you a couple of weeks ago, and 
sort of getting to know you and talking about this podcast, you shared two words with me that I told you I love them. Perhaps others have heard them more frequently than I have, but I really love them and I want to talk about them for a moment. The words were griot and Nancy. And Nancy, yes. What a griot is, a griot is a West African historian, storyteller, praise singer, poet, or musician. And you often hear the saying, when a griot dies, it's the equivalent of a hundred libraries or an entire library burning to the ground. Because griots in West African culture over centuries would pass on oral storytelling and historical traditions within villages, within communities, and would actually sometimes speak for hours, even days at a time. And that was how in West African culture, you pass on traditions, you pass on information, you pass on history. And where I kind of had an aha moment with the name and the history of Agrio is that, you know, anybody who lives in a diaspora of the Americas or even Asia or Europe where Black people are scattered throughout, oftentimes you didn't go over on a cruise ship. It was because of the slave trade. So a lot of what you see in Jamaican culture, which is my cultural heritage, or even see in African-American culture, where you have a community that has a strong tradition of oral storytelling or oral communication. Often, even you look in pop culture, you know, singing, rap, you know, spoken word. That comes from that West African tradition because most descendants of slaves that came to the West Indies, the Caribbean, to the Americas were of West African tradition, or in Jamaica, it was a Shanti tradition. So in many cases, it made a lot of sense. Just as, you know, with this reckoning and awakening, you learn more about your background. Like, why am I in sales? Why am I easy to get up and present? Why is it easier for me to weave a story into my pitch, even though it's not necessarily like a cultural story, but maybe pitching for an enterprise account? And you know, when you go through this reckoning and awakening, you find your voice. And often when you find your voice, you find it through honoring who you are and what you bring to the table and what your history is. So in many cases, I'm like, you know what? I'm kind of like a centuries later version of a griot because everybody knows me for telling stories. And that's how I get my point across. But I'm just thinking unwittingly that I've probably been doing that all this time, not because I watch a lot of TV. But because my aunts were great storytellers, my uncles were great storytellers, my dad was an incredible storyteller, my grandfather was an incredible storyteller. I never met my grandfather, but I've been told he was an incredible storyteller. So that essentially is coming from a longstanding tradition of West African culture. So that word griot really stuck with me. And in terms of a griot going over to a Nancy, I lived in Jamaica up till I was about maybe seven years old. I was born in Toronto, but we moved back. And when we moved back, I was in elementary school for about maybe four years. And the teacher would put on a TV and we'd watch this woman. Her name was Miss Louise Bennett. They used to call her Miss Lou. And she had a TV show where she told stories to children. And she would always tell folk tales about this clever, mischievous spider called a Nancy. And Nancy's stories would have a parable where some sort of proverb, some sort of words of wisdom or a lesson to be learned from the story around the adventures of like a Nancy, or I don't know if you've heard of Br'er Rabbit. Yeah. 
Br'er Rabbit actually originates from West African culture. Br'er Rabbit was almost like an African-American, I guess, like an interpolation of similar stories. They all come back from West African culture of storytelling, where you'd use your story to bring forth a lesson. So Anansi was a spider, a mischievous spider. You know, he had like arch nemesis or he had rivals. And the story would be about something happening with their rival and leading to a lesson. So the Anansi stories were essentially an extension of West African culture as well, where you use storytelling to put forth a lesson or to teach history or to you know bring advice. So all these things, I knew about these all my life, but now it makes more sense now that my senses and my awareness is so much more acute. Absolutely. And tie that back into what you're doing for a profession. We are storytellers. We're telling stories for brands. Yeah. And it's funny because it's weird and it speaks to a lot to the work that we have to do. It's often the case that in the, particularly in the sales organizations or in marketing departments, places where storytelling can be very powerful and impactful, there are not a lot of people that look like me in those fields, yet we come from a tradition where we could do it really well. So it makes you wonder. Why aren't these people on the front lines representing organizations telling great stories? And that's where I'm trying to double down right now. Like, I want more people in roles and responsibilities that I have to look like me and to look like you, you know, to look like Kathy Chang. And that's what we got to do now. This is now, maybe for me in my lifetime, the third iteration of a moment of reckoning. And, you know, if you want to go by three, three strikes. This is my last kick at the can. You know, I wasn't around for the civil rights movement. I was just born. I read about it. I was a college student when the LA riots created like a shockwave over the planet. So this is around the time. This is my last shot. So it's time now to get everybody on that bus. And, you know, it's funny because I see a lot in your podcast. I see diversity, diversity, diversity. But I don't think you can have D without the I. Like we're diverse. Our communities are diverse. Our companies are diverse, yeah, but they're not inclusive. Most companies have a lot of people that look like me, but where are they situated within the organizations? That's what we have to ask ourselves and challenge ourselves to make that change. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And even at Promo Kitchen, we've talked about our board and representing what we think and what we do. And we have an amazing board. We truly do. We have amazing diversity of thought, but we do have work to do and we are committing to that. We've talked a lot to anyone listening here about volunteers and bringing people in and making changes that hopefully we'll see over the next few years. So yes, these things will take time, but we are committed to doing that work. It's a long game. And where I am right now, where I'm trying to be a griot, is wherever anybody's willing to hear me out and listen to what I'm saying is I'm just asking people at this point in time, this to me is like halftime in the locker. Last year was like fueled by so much energy and so much passion and in many cases, adrenaline. And a lot of it is performative. But in this year and beyond, it's now time to do the work. And this kind of work, it's a little boring. It's going to be tied to numbers and KPIs and results. It probably won't, won't allow you to post much on social media. Hey, you know what? I brought up the diversity count by 1% in this department. And it's going to be over a long period of time. And this is the time where people tap out. Yeah. And so I'm trying to be a griot to say, 
what's your why? Because if you don't have a why, you need to find it now. Because in 10 years, the world's going to be a lot different looking. And the people that are going to make up most of the population of the Americas will be looking for jobs, will be educated. They will be your talent pool. They will be the face of your clients. And they will be your leaders. So you need to figure out what your why is now so you can be on the right side of history and get these people ready because 10 years goes by really fast. Like the numbers are pretty staggered in terms of representation. Even in Canada, in 10 years, 31% of Canada will be people of color. That's an interesting statistic. And yes, we'll see a change. As you mentioned, there'll be more leaders of color and leaders in different positions. How do you think racism is going to be in 10 years? I bring this up because for a long time, late last year, I thought, wow, people are doing the work. I inherently think people are trying and people want to learn and people want to do the work. I also thought we were on a really good path for a change. You know, again, I mentioned my kids. I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old. I can't help but think of how they'll go to school and experience such different things than I did and see so much more than I did. And I'm excited for that. My daughter's in Chicago Public School. She's in a very diverse school. I'm excited for just the path that she's on. But I also think I've been really naive to see that change is not so soon. We have a lot more work to do than I thought. That's very slow. Yeah, we got a lot of work to do. And so although you say the reality is we'll see more leaders in position of color and all of that, do you think racism will be better in 10 years? Racism will always be here. Like as long as we have the gift of choice, you know, the gift of choice can be an opinion is a gift and a curse at the same time. And one of the downsides of human beings is that we're tribalistic by nature. And unlike the other animals in the kingdom, we can kind of choose and not just rely on instincts alone. There'll be some sort of racism happening 10 years from now. But I think really right now, it's just focusing on eradicating as much of it as possible. And then my instincts are telling me that in 10 years, it may morph into a whole different type of discrimination based on who has the keys to the, you know, keys to the house. And then we'll have to address that accordingly, right? Because, I mean, I've grown up in communities where, let's say, if you even look at m and situation, right, you grew up in a very tough part of Detroit, you know, and he was like one of the only white kids in that neighborhood. And yeah, he didn't have a smooth go. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in 10 years. But I'm just focusing on now because it literally morphs every month. Like I've had some situations happen this past month that was a lot different than what happened like four months ago. Or I've had people who have presented themselves as allies, but they were allies when it was cool to be an ally. You know, it was cool to change your profile pic on Blackout Tuesday in June. It was cool to show a picture of yourself protesting with your son, you know, in Seattle. But then when it was time to do the work and say, hey, you know what? You're in private equity. I need your help for a grassroots organization that's trying to get public funding. You know how to write a proposal. Can you critique this? All of a sudden, the person disappears. And it, it really caught me off guard, you know. And so that was a lesson learned, and that will adjust my way of looking at what true allyship is going forward. But I never would have predicted that at the time. I think this is going to morph, like, literally every moment you know, we're awake and alive. Yeah. 
And so you bring up some statistics about Canada and that's where you are now. And I've heard a lot of people talk about how Canada, it, things are just different there. Racism is different there. People are just different there. I want your opinion. What is racism like there? How is it different? Why is it different? What's diversity like there? I live in, you know, greater Toronto area, which is probably one of the most multicultural mosaics on the planet, one of the most diverse cities on the planet. But it's not the most inclusive city on the planet. Racism and discrimination or even anti-Semitism, you know, misogyny, Islamophobia. In Canada, it's not as sensational as it is in the States. Like, it's not something that you can make a major motion picture about. It's very subtle. In some cases, there's a lot of microaggression. It's very polite. It's the equivalent of death by a thousand cuts. Often takes you to kind of sit down and think about it and go, hey, wait a minute. What did that person just say to me? And then there's overt moments as well, too. Even just when you look at instances of anti-Asian hate, the amount of reported incidents per capita of anti-Asian hate is higher in Canada than it is the States. So it rankles people sometimes where, you know, the Canadian voice around racism, discrimination starts to, you know, express themselves. And, it's, and the first thing you often get, which is a great form of gaslighting, is like, well, you know, it's not as bad as the States. There wasn't a moment in time where I wanted to choose a better racism. Racism is racism. It's just different here. It's different here, but it does have its moments of overt, like, atrocity. Like, we've had our moments in Canada, too. As a matter of fact, in Toronto, as a black man driving in Toronto, I am 20 times more likely to be pulled over by a cop than my white counterpart. And that's happened. I've had a long-standing challenge over a 30, 40-year period with encounters with our police forces, of which I have cousins who are great cops. I have friends who are great cops. But we have similar challenges here, too. Before we press record, I was talking to you about something I recently read, and that was that there is a new fund out for Black journalists. And the fund is to help pay for therapy and mental health for Black journalists that are doing the work in their field, maybe personally as well. Then also uncovering a lot of stories around racism and really experiencing extra trauma because it's just a lot for them to talk about day in, day out. And in our industry, as there are not a ton of diverse industry folks, mm -hmm. I often talk about people on webinars or podcasts and think, wow, I'm truly always going to the same person. I'm truly always going to the same people. I'm truly always having the same echo chamber conversations. Yes. And for you and my Val Spillers and my Deshaun's and my Kiani's and Kathy's and everyone in this industry that's doing such an incredible job, I can't imagine that it feels like the weight of the world's on your shoulders right now. So I know for you, in hearing some of your presentations, you said, and I quote, you are often the first one, the only one, and sometimes the everyone. Talk to me about that. That's a narrative for many people all their lives. So this is nothing new where, yeah, you're the first one. I mean, how many times have we seen on social media or even like LinkedIn where it's like, hey, you know, this is the first African-American woman rocket pilot or, you know, the first Latina secretary of state, you know, or first indigenous CEO. And so even in this generation and in this day and time in the new millennium, there's just a whole lot of firsts, which speaks volumes as to how far we have to go. And then often you're the only one in the room. Like our industry is not 
very diverse at all levels, especially, you know, ownership or leadership level or even sales representation. So, yeah, when your trade shows, everybody recognizes you. Sometimes they mistake you for the black counterpart. My personal experience where, you know, I've been mistaken for Deshaun Diggs. Yeah, Deshaun Diggs and I look nothing alike. But, yeah, there's only a handful of us. And then when we say everyone, and this goes back to childhood, you know, you were just raised with the understanding that what you're doing and how you're being judged and how you're being observed will have a butterfly effect on anybody else that comes after you that looks like you. So there's an extra weight on you to be perfect. And that takes a toll because no one can be perfect and sustain that for a period of time. So the thing about that right now is that I think many of us are kind of getting over that with all this extra work we have to do, this extra education, just this extra crusading. And then just this extra work of making sure that everybody follows through on their promises, because we know that there will never be another time like this in our lives, as long as we're on this planet. Like, this is it. So that weight's been around forever, but I think a lot of us are kind of like, you know, we have our moments where we need to decompress, get some fresh air, but we got to get back at it. But it's definitely a heavy weight being, you know, the first one, the only one and everyone at the same time. Absolutely. What can industry folks or anyone speaking to you in these conversations do to make that better? First thing you need to do is you need to listen. I know I'm trying to do this at this stage in my life. There are just some things that I have gaps on. There's some things where I just got immense blind spots. We all have unconscious bias in us. We've all made up our mind based on our relative experiences, but because we all operate in silos, we don't see that full diversity of thought so it's time to listen and learn and also it's time to weigh in and not be silent and it's time to help like we need every cylinder firing like give me an example issues of anti-asian hate and awareness around that more than likely you see asian people spreading the gospel on that but the thing is that it shouldn't be just them they didn't cause this problem so everybody has to win. It's like all hands on deck. And there may be some people, maybe because they're under the lens of potentially being the perpetrators of these atrocities, are a little sheepish to come out and help. Everybody's looking for allies right now. It's a safe space for everybody to weigh in and help. So one should not be hiding because they feel they're going to get publicly shamed or be blamed for what's happening. We need all hands on deck. And it can't be just about the people who are under the boot of these atrocities having to continuously educate you. You need to educate yourselves. You need to listen. You need to come with humility to a safe space and be an ally and help out. Because at the end of the day, if you look at the United States, in 10 years, 50% of your population will be non-white. So if you want to make this country great in 10 years, we need everybody helping out and we need everybody to be at their best and to bring their true authentic selves to work or to academia or to the communities. So everybody has to be included. So no one can lie back and be silent about this. It's going to affect all of us in the end. Racism, discrimination is not a scourge just to the peoples who are under the boot of it, but it's a scourge to all society. You can't avoid 
not being affected by this. Actually, I heard a crazy number of how much money racism caused the American economy. I heard it's trillions of dollars. There was just an article about racism affecting your health. The CDC released an article about this. No surprises there. Yeah. Hugh, thank you for this conversation. If you can end this in any way, any closing thoughts, anything we didn't cover? We were in a great industry. Like, I love this industry. And, you know, we when we chatted before, I kind of told it, I kind of written it off. I was just a little disappointed in the lack of allyship coming from our organizations and associations that represent this industry in the spring. But in talking to you and talking to Kate and seeing all the great things you guys are doing, and then also hearing about these diversity boards, I feel it's going in the right direction. But everybody out there, you can all play a part in your own special way. And I think what it comes down to is find your why. And you have to ask yourself, like, what side of history do you want to be on when they lay you into the ground? We all can tell a great story about maybe some of the deals we did or the programs we landed or the clients. But really, are you going to get eulogized for that? Like, what will be your legacy? Because this is not going away. Like, this movement is not going away. It's not going to disappear and dissipate the thin air. So you just have to ask yourself, like, what side of this do you want to be on? And everybody can play a part in making a difference. Yeah. So silence is probably one of the worst forms of killing this movement. Play a part. Play a part. Thank you, Hugh, very much. And for anyone listening, and if anybody wants to play a part and be held accountable, please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Shoot me a note, and I'm happy to have a conversation with you about how to be accountable and how to be a better ally. Hugh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the work. Thank you for unpacking. No, all good. All good. My pleasure. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.